open our Bibles, if you would please, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 4. And we are privileged to come back to our study here in 1 John tonight to what I think is one of the most important areas of Scripture that we have for the church today. Now, I'd like us to get right into the reading of Scripture, and then we'll get into the message. But you'll notice here, 1 John chapter 4, verse number 1, the apostle says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now is it already in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us, He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Recently I was listening to a sermon by John MacArthur. It was a sermon he preached about eight years ago at the Ligonier Conference in Orlando, Florida. And I don't remember exactly what his exact words were, but he was talking about his expectations when he first came out of seminary. And he said that he expected that he would encounter battles over the inerrancy of Scripture. He said he knew there would be battles over the authority of God's Word and over the deity of Jesus Christ. He said that he knew that there would be battles over the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But what he said he never expected to happen was that he would spend almost his entire ministry, most of his ministry, in rescuing the gospel from evangelicals. As we look in the passage here in 1 John again tonight, this is what John faced. In fact, the battles that MacArthur talked about, or what he mentioned, are the same battles that have been fought ever since the apostles first started preaching. And in this scripture, John mentions one of those battles specifically, and that is the battle over the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, we can add to that all of these other ones that we've mentioned here, and, and certainly there is a battle over the truth of the gospel. Now, MacArthur's remarks were made just prior, or in the, while he was in the process of writing a book that's entitled Hard to Believe. And if you haven't read that book, I would uh, recommend it to you. And what he writes about there is that in this age of easy believism and Uh, the pragmatic approach to the gospel in a time when the gospel is being pared down to make it palatable and more attractive to people, MacArthur argues that the gospel was never easy to believe, that the gospel genders strife, that its symbolism of the cross makes it scandalous, that its proponents who are called in Scripture and what people have called them the off-scouring of the world make it a message that's very hard for people to believe. And most importantly, points out that the gospel cannot be believed unless God works in a sovereign way to overrule a person's or all objections against it. That God has to work in a heart, in the heart, in order for people to receive the gospel because there's no way that anyone can believe it unless God first does that work in his heart. And then finally, he points out that the gospel is purposely designed to be that way. And it's that way so that no one can take credit for what God does. 
Now, I thought that that sermon was very apropos in consideration of the text that we have here in First John tonight. The deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of the Bible, the sovereign work of God in salvation. The gospel is under attack from every side. And the attack doesn't come so much from uh, the world of non-Christians, not so much from the Muslims or the Hindus or the Buddhists or atheists, but the attacks on the gospel tonight and in, 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 our, in our country today is actually coming from inside, from those who claim to know Christ. Now, this is the third time that we come back to the Scripture. It's not going to be last. We'll, we'll come back to it again next week. There's a lot to say on this subject. And here, John gives us a test for false prophets. And this is a warning to us that we are not to believe everybody that comes down the pike just because they say they have a message from God. Now, we've noted previously the context of John's teaching. And the context is because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And wherever the gospel is preached, you'll find that right on its heels is a false prophet. There's someone there who's trying to destroy the true message of God. And that was certainly true in John's day. I mean, here he is writing to churches that as they read his letter, I, I can just see them looking suspiciously around them because the very ones that he's talking about were among them. Those were the ones John was warning them about. Now, John wasn't present with them. That's why he writes them a letter. And as soon as he was gone from them, when the shepherd was not close enough to keep watch over the sheep, then the wolf comes and he begins to scatter the sheep. And Jesus warned about that. He, he said that you have to keep your eye on these wolves, the ones that pretend to be shepherds because they come in sheep's clothing. And that doesn't mean that they come dressed as sheep. It means they come dressed as shepherds. They look like they're t- the people that would tell the truth. They wear the clothes of the shepherd. They have the aura of the shepherd. They have the, the, the doctrines that they claim come from the God, word of God. But they're dressed in the wool of the sheep, and they appear to be guides, but they are actually ravening wolves. Now, Paul warned about that as well when he was writing or when he was uh, speaking to the Ephesian elders. In Acts chapter 20, he said, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Now that last verse there is very important. He says, men will arise from among you that will speak perverse things, and they will draw away disciples after them. So how do you stop that? Well, he gives an answer there in verse number 28 in, in Acts 20. He says, take heed to yourselves. And that's, in, in essence, what, what John says in our text. He says, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. In other words, he's saying, take heed to yourselves. Watch out for this. Try the spirits. And he means try those preachers and try those people that bring a message and find out whether they are really from God. Now, that requires diligence on the part of God's people. It requires keeping our eyes open, keeping our ears attuned so that when we hear these people that preach, we can spot false teachings when we hear them. Well, then the second part of the message that we looked at last week, we began to talk about some of the doctrines that are under attack. And so we talked about the content of false teaching. And a false teacher can be detected in various ways. Sometimes you can just look at the lifestyle of that person. 
See how he treats others. Look at his attitude. Look at how he uh, treats the needy and see whether he has a love for the brethren. And that's, that's one of the criteria that Jesus had for rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. He, he said to them in Matthew chapter 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. And then John used that same criterion earlier in this epistle, in the third chapter, verse 17. He said, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? So you can identify false prophets by those who want to fleece the people, those who want to steal from them, and then they themselves are living ostentatious lifestyles. But this section... Uh, of this epistle has really more to do with the message that they preach. This is about the doctrine that they bring. And when their doctrine strays away from the revealed word of God, when they pervert the doctrine of Scripture, then they're false prophets. They're not people of God. They don't have the Spirit of God. The Scripture says that they have a demon spirit. They teach the doctrine of demons. Now, I know that's not a nice way of putting it. And people don't like it when you say things like that. Uh, Jesus called them hypocrites and called them ravening wolves. And when Peter and John, or Peter and Jude rather, uh, called them beasts, and when Peter called them dogs returning to their vomit and sows that wallow in the mire, none of that's very nice. But it's hard for you to be nice about an issue when you have people that would drag you and your children and your friends and all of your loved ones into the pit of hell. It's, it's hard to say something nice about someone who would do that. So we have to expose false teachers. It's not popular to do in churches today. It's not popular to talk about the doctrines that other people are preaching and say that they're wrong. But that is exactly what the Scripture tells us to do. And it's not a time for us to worry about being divisive. The, the gospel itself is divisive. It's what the Word says. It separates. The Word of God and the gospel is a battleground. And so we've been careful to look at some doctrinal issues uh, uh, that phony prophets preach and that what separates them from true prophets of God, true preachers of God. So we looked at then um, last week Christology. Christology, and that's the study of the person and the attributes of Christ. And John argues against those who have the wrong Christology. Here in the third verse, he says, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now it's already in the world. Now, the right Christology is what John develops in this letter. He, he shows us that, John, uh, that Jesus rather existed before his appearance in Bethlehem, that, that Jesus was God incarnate, that Jesus was sinless. And those are doctrines that were attacked almost as soon as the apostles started preaching them. And some have said that every heretical doctrine that's ever been known was already here in some form or another before the end of the second century. And the attack has not lessened. The, her uh, the heresies are still there. They keep being, being recycled uh, century after century and perversions over the deity of Christ and the things we just mentioned here, the incarnation, the, the sinlessness of Christ, those are doctrines that are attacked and highly prevalent among doctrines in the cults like the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. Now, those are people who love or want to try to swim in the mainstream of Christianity, 
And there are people that are ignorant of what they really believe, and they let those people creep in. But Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses don't pose the only threat that there is. In fact, it may not even be the worst threat. The worst threat to orthodoxy is actually theological liberalism. Now, Christology is attacked when you have preachers that say that they are orthodox and they believe that the grace of God is big enough that even those that have never heard of Christ and even those that have never believed in Christ, as long as they are sincere, as long as they're really trying hard, whether they've heard of Christ or even know anything about him at all, whether they have believed in him, God understands that if they're trying hard, and so God accepts them. And that's the doctrine of Billy Graham. That's the doctrine of Robert Schuller. Some of the biggest names in the evangelical world are fuzzy, and they fudge over these doctrines. I was reading an article the other day about Rick Warren who had a dialogue with the Jewish rabbi for over an hour without even mentioning the name of Jesus Christ. And some people that you think would never surrender the truth have jumped on the bandwagon. John Piper fell all over himself, loving Rick Warren to death and praising the purpose-driven life. And that is what we have to look out for, those kinds of things. I like what R.C. Sproul said about this. He said that the bridge that brings those two sides together is a two-way bridge. It doesn't go one way. That when you reach out to the theological liberal and you embrace him, then sooner or later that liberalism will become a part of your doctrine. Now, folks, I don't mind being a separatist. I don't mind hanging out by ourselves. That's okay with me if that's what has to take place because I don't want to be sucked into this heretical cesspool and then become a part of that problem. This is why we teach from the Word of God. This is why we stick with the Bible and teach it just like it says. Now, let me go a little bit further, and I hope you don't mind me backing up and going over some of those things because I think they're important, and maybe I've added a little bit more perspective to what we've talked about anyway. But the next I want to talk to you about submission to the Lordship of Christ. Now, you, you hear me mention this often, And I've really been much more aware of the absolute need of the recovery of this particular doctrine since we've been studying Matthew, which is the gospel of the king. And there's a very peculiar phenomenon that's going on among fundamental churches today. And at the head of this are some people that have been associated with Dallas Theological Seminary like Charles Ryrie. Well, that's a pretty big name in in evangelicalism. And oddly enough, there are some strange bedfellows with him among independent fundamental Baptists. And the issue is over whether a person must submit to Christ as Lord for salvation or is it only necessary to believe in Christ as Savior. In other words, that you can believe and receive Christ as Savior without receiving him as Lord. Now, oddly enough, there, this is a small segment of Christianity that really should be right on the gospel, and yet they have rejected submission to the lordship of Christ as a necessary element of the gospel. And so some say that that will come later, and some say that it may never come at all. And there are others that say that it's possible for you to later deny Christ altogether. And as long as you've made a profession of faith that you're solid and you're saved. Now, that's a small movement among peculiarly, it's a peculiarly American phenomenon, and that's really not ever been the history of the church. It's not really a, an orthodox belief, and it's looked upon 
by Christians in other parts of the world with incredulity. I mean, they really can't believe this. I mean, if America had not exported such a doctrine like this, the rest of the world would never have heard of it. And so you say, well, why, if that's such a small thing, and there aren't that many people that are involved in it, why do we even talk about it? Well, it's because I want to make you understand that as an independent Bible-believing Baptist church that we have no part of it, that it undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, to me, it's unconscionable. I don't see how that you can say you believe the Bible and, and believe salvation does not include reception of Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior. Now, fundamental to our understanding of the issue is knowing that salvation has with it a cross of self-denial. There's the surrendering to the full power and the authority of Christ. And so there are people that say, well, believe him as your Savior, and, and he'll save you by his grace, but you need not say that I surrender my life to you. And I think that's tampering with the gospel. Some, some may not like what I'm going to say next, but who is it that tampers with the gospel? Who is it that most wants to destroy the gospel? Well, we've learned in our study here that there's only two spirits in the world. Either it's the Holy Spirit or it's the doctrine of demons, the spirit of Antichrist. And yes, it's true that even people who are Christians can be fooled by doctrines of demons. And so it's no wonder that MacArthur said that he never expected to have to recover the gospel from evangelicals. I mean, you don't expect that you'll have to defend the gospel against Bible-believing fundamentalists. And so this is an error that has to be corrected. Now, I was having a discussion with one of my good pastor friends some time ago, and we were talking about this issue. And quite frankly, I don't think that he understood what his side, and he, dis, and, and he was sort of in disagreement over this thing. I don't think he really understood what his side was saying. He didn't really understand the lordship debate, what it was over. He was used to hearing the term and hearing his preacher buddies say that they were against lordship salvation. And lordship salvation is an unfortunate term because the other side of the debate makes it about work salvation. And so they just repeat like parrots what they hear and they don't know what's really been said. But this is not about work salvation. It's not about teaching that you can be saved by what you do. It simply means that contained within true repentance and faith is complete surrender to Christ. That when the Holy Spirit regenerates a person, he gives the person the kind of faith that will not unhesitatingly, or that will not unhesitatingly give in to all of Christ's demands. That's what repentance and faith, real repentance and faith includes. And yet a person may not understand all that entails at the time. But he can't say, well, I want to be saved from hell. I want the carrot of heaven, but I like the way that I'm living right now. Thank you very much. I want to be saved, but... It's not going to have any effect on me. And non-lordship salvation says that very thing, that you can have heaven, but you don't have to follow Christ. Now, one of the, or the, an editor of one of the most prominent fundamental Baptist papers said that being a disciple and being saved are not synonymous. Let me read to you a quote from his book. I'm actually reading from his book. He said, Some say, but the Bible says, If a man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. The Bible says, If you don't love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and hate your father and mother and all that, you can't be a disciple. 
The Bible says that if you don't forsake all that you have, you can't be a disciple, Luke 14, 33. That is all true. But remember, he's saying, you cannot be my disciple. He didn't say you can't go to heaven. We must not confuse the requirements for discipleship with the requirement for salvation. Every disciple is a believer, but every believer is not a disciple. A a disciple is a learner, a student. Now, can you imagine that for a moment that what Jesus meant to say when, in those scriptures that, that this fellow just quoted, that Jesus is saying, sure, you can go your own way. You don't have to take up your cross. You don't have to follow me. You don't really have to be a disciple. Now, the rest of us, what we're going to do, we're going out for persecution, and we're going for hardship, and we're going out here, and we're going to be slandered, and possibly we'll even be put to death. But you don't have to do that. You, you just take the easy route. And we'll meet you in heaven. Is that the gospel of Christ? I mean, can you honestly read the gospels and and those very statements that that editor made and say that none of that is necessary for a believer? That's not confusing works for salvation. That is complete misunderstanding of what God does in grace. And it's no wonder that they think like this because the very same people do not understand even the doctrine of repentance. And they define repentance as a change from unbelief to belief, and that's all that it is. But repentance, biblical repentance, is a change of mind towards God that leads to a change of life. And true repentance never stops short of that intent. And if the intent is anything less than that, then it's a man-made repentance and not a God-given repentance. And that false notion's not surprising when these people also reject what the Holy Spirit does in regeneration. They do not believe that the Holy Spirit actually disposes the heart to believe. That the way that you believe is because someone has used persuasive tactics on you. Now listen to another quote, and this is the leading statement from the chapter that I just quoted from this man's book. This is the leading statement. Not only do Bible examples refute lordship salvation, but clear passages of Scripture refute it also. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now keep in mind that one does not have the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life until after he is saved. Romans 8.9 says, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The Bible says in Galatians 4.6, And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. John 3.6 says, Believers are born of the Spirit, They are sealed by the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. If you can't call Jesus Lord without the Holy Ghost, and you must call him Lord to get saved, and you're not saved without the Holy Ghost, you have a problem. Now, what kind of a nonsensical statement is that? Do you know what that is, actually? Maybe you didn't catch it all, but what it is is a denial of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and already disposing the heart of someone to believe. And so this man is actually saying that repentance and faith are all yours that you start that. But I would ask, what is it that the Holy Spirit does with the gospel of Jesus Christ other than enable a person to call upon Jesus as Lord in order to be saved? What is the Holy Spirit doing when the gospel is preached? And so regeneration is when the Holy Spirit quickens a person to life, which infallibly leads to repentance and faith. And that's why you can't call Jesus Lord without the Holy Spirit. Now, if they understood that work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, they would see that a person could never receive Christ as Savior and at the same time reject his lordship. 
And so those are very serious errors. And it just goes to show you the lengths that people will go to to root out our Baptist heritage of believing in the doctrines of grace. Now, submission to the Lordship of Christ has been abandoned and fundamental doctrines like repentance have been redefined. And I'll say this to you again, that's not historical Christianity. It's a strange phenomenon that's developed within a certain segment of Christianity in the past few years. So you're not going to find it in the writings of our Baptist forefathers, and you're not going to find it in other Orthodox writings. It's recent history. And yet, some are so loyal to those types of teachers that they just swallow it all and they go on. Now, another point that I would make concerning that is what is the proof of our justification? The apostle, or rather James says in in James chapter 2, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So the person who says that we need not surrender to the lordship of Christ is really no better than the devil himself because the devils believe and tremble. The demons believe, but they have a dead faith. There's no change in them either. And so those that have been truly justified by their faith in Christ give evidence of their faith by their works, which is produced by their surrendering to Christ as their Lord. It's not their works that save them, But they've submitted to Christ, which is the evidence of that faith. Now, you back up just a moment to that example that I gave before. What about that argument that says that you can be a believer but not a disciple? Well, then you'd have to ask, can you go to heaven with a dead faith? Because that's what a believer would be if he wasn't a disciple. He'd be someone who has a dead faith. So that's the point of... James' argument, those that are truly born again give evidence, and that's John's argument. One of the tests that we've studied here in the epistle of 1 John, one of the tests for knowing that you are a true disciple of Christ is the test of obedience. So John doesn't allow that any person could have salvation that would hold on to some kind of a salvation that just leaves them in a neutral state. Can you be in the kingdom of God without ever, ever actually bowing your knee to the king. That is a preposterous idea. And the non-lordship view is aberrant theology. So Paul says, take he, or John, Paul said, take heed yourself, and John says, believe not every spirit. Now let me give you a third one here, and that is submission to the authority of Scripture. A phony prophet does not submit to the authority of Scripture. Now we're going to go over this verse next week, verse number 6, but this is a verse that speaks of authority. He says, We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now there John is referring to the collective group of apostles that have written Scripture. And I'm going to have more to say on this verse next week, but let me make a brief point here about this verse. All authority for belief and practice must come from the Scripture. And so a dead giveaway of a false teacher is the use of any kind of extra-biblical authority. Now, of course, there are, there are some people that, that use the King James Bible, and, and they have their slants and their twists that they put on the Bible, and, and we spend time explaining the Scriptures correctly. They believe the Bible, yeah, but yes, but they, they have wrong interpretations. 
And you can be sure of this, the devil is certainly able to use a King James Bible. The devil is able to use other translations to confuse people. People that believe purely in a work salvation use the King James Bible sometimes. People that argue against the security of the believer use King James Bibles. And there are people that believe in sinless perfection and believe in the charismatic gifts that those are for Christians today. They use King James Bibles. And some of them wouldn't dare think of anything using anything else but a good old King James Bible. But those are errors, and they're dangerous errors. Adam Clark, who is a a good commentator on many different things, believed in entire sanctification. He used the King James Bible. John Wesley, who taught many, many good things, also believed that you could lose your salvation, and he used a King James Bible. Alexander Campbell, who tore up Baptist churches all over the Ohio Valley and in the South, preaching baptismal regeneration, used a King James Bible. So we have to be aware that there are people that use the same Bible that we use, and they are perverting it. It's one of the tactics of false teachers. Well, then what about extra-biblical authority? Well, there's different forms of that. There's different ways that people have an extra authority besides the Bible. For instance, the the Charismatics do not, or they do believe in an extra-biblical authority. So they believe that God reveals things to them apart from the Bible. And so they believe in the subjective experience of having tongues and having visions and having these words of knowledge. Those those experiences have no objective standard. There's no way that you could evaluate something like that. And one thing I've never done, now it may, may, maybe some of you know somebody like this, but I have yet to meet a, a, a charismatic Bible scholar. I mean, I've never met one that really cared a whole lot about studying words and comparative analysis of Scripture. Most of them are more like this. This is my story and I'm sticking to it. This is my experience. This is what happened to me. It doesn't make any difference whether the Bible supports that or not. It's my experience. If you want a real good laugh, just sometime turn on the television and watch Kenneth Copeland with one of his roundtable discussions on Scripture. I mean, that, that's really crazy stuff, folks, that you'll hear there. When you, whenever you hear someone burst out with a wild tongue in the middle of a sermon, then you can just write it down. Just, just mark it off there. You just found a false prophet. Because God is not the author of confusion. And then one of the, or the largest body of Christians in the world cares nothing at all about the authority of Scripture. In fact, they upset the whole apple cart because they believe that the church gives authority to the Bible rather than the Bible giving authority to the church. I think you know who I'm talking about, Roman Catholicism. They don't care about the authority of Scripture. The people don't submit to Scripture. They submit to the church. So there's no scriptural authority for hundreds of doctrines that they teach. I mean, it's just like wandering through a garden that's been overtaken with weeds, and you pull up anything you want, and you're not likely to get something good. It's all perversion, just about. So if a group departs from the authority of Scripture, they're false prophets. And then, of course, finally, we have to talk about those who have an additional book, those who have something else that they carry around. They carry a Bible, but they carry another revelation also. They have another book to base their doctrines on. An example of that would be the Book of Mormon. 
the Book of Mormon cannot stand the scrutiny of the Bible. In fact, the Bible rules out the Book of Mormon in the very text that we're reading tonight. Verse number 6 gets rid of the Book of Mormon. And there are plenty of other scriptures that you can find that do the same. So the Mormons have other things. They have doctrines and, and covenants. It's one of their writings. And they take those writings that have been handed down in, a, in their brief minuscule existence and they give them more authority than they do the Bible. And then the Jehovah Witnesses have the Watchtower. They even have their own perverted version of the New Testament. That's the New World Translation. And what the New World Translation does is it changes Scripture to support their weird, strange, evil, heretical doctrines against the deity of Jesus Christ and claim that he is a lesser God. And their Bible, the New World Translation, supports that. But you know something that you can do? You can look at a King James Bible. You can look up the, the translators of the King James Bible. You can look up their education. You can look up what they believe. You can look up their linguistic abilities. You can look up anything you want to about the translators of the, of the King James Bible. But what you cannot do is find a list of translators for the Jehovah Witnesses New World Translation. They will not give it to you. They don't publish it. You can't ask about it. You can't check it out. And they don't do it because they know that it can't stand the scrutiny that would be applied to it. And so you're not going to find a list of the translators of that. And the Jehovah Witnesses have made enough changes and and enough revisions and enough retractions and do-overs throughout their history to prove that they're false prophets. And then you can add to that list, and boy, I'm on a roll here. I'll just tell you about them all tonight. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists and, and Christian scientists, they all have other writings that they believe that are inspired besides the Bible. And any time that you have anything like that, then, then you can throw out verse number 6 that we've read tonight. You can't use the Bible with any other authority. Because if you do, then that other authority automatically says that the Bible is unreliable, that it's untrustworthy. Because John has just told us here in verse number 6, We are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. So John is saying the authority comes from the word that's been delivered by Jesus to the apostles, to the prophets, to what we have in the canon of Scripture. It's not given to anybody else. And so when you see all of these perversions then you know without hesitation that what you have found is a false prophet. So I'll stop with that. Next week we're going to come back to this again and we'll explain a little bit more about a very, very important text for the people of God today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow now and we look at this text that we've had tonight and and I know that what we say here from the pulpit is not popular with a lot of people. Uh, people do say things like this are divisive, that you shouldn't criticize other doctrines, you shouldn't criticize other churches and what they believe. But that's not our purpose. It's a, a purpose of criticism. Our purpose is to show what the Bible teaches, how a person can receive eternal life, what it means to believe in Jesus Christ and who he is. And, and if we don't know that, if we don't have that information, then there's no, no possible way that we can be saved. So, Lord, help us to teach the truth from your word, to stand on it without backing down. In every instance, may we stand on your word. Lord, bless us as we sing tonight. We thank you for those that have attended and and heard your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.